This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I have been waiting to talk to Hua Xu for so long. I read The Floating China, uh, a Floating Chinaman, I should say, um, when it came out in 16. And if you've seen wow. his byline in the, in the New Yorker, I mean, dude, We'll, we'll get to the New Yorker stuff, but I read everything you write. Stay True is your memoir. It is extraordinary. This is a book about grief and art and growing up and zines. Lots of zines, lots of music. This is such a great book. So happy to see you. Thank you for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. And I'm just astounded that you read uh, my first book. So thank you. Thank you very much for that. It was one of those, like, who is this guy? Oh, right. I know his byline from the New Yorker. I really <laughs> should just see what's going on. And I had read A Hanging in China in Union Square, so it was mm -hmm. kind of like, all right, let's see what's going on. But we're going to get to that book in a second. Cool. Let's talk about Stay True, though, because this memoir, dude, this is a really great book. And I had no idea this was part of your backstory. So would you just explain where your memoir comes from? So it's a memoir that I sort of started writing back in 1998. I mean, at the time, I didn't know I would become a writer or write a, any books or that this would become a book. But um, what had happened was basically uh, I was between junior and senior year of college. And one of my very close friends, uh, Ken, was uh, murdered uh, over the summer. And so, you know, the moment it happened, everyone was in shock. You know, he was like really beloved by a, by a really wide array of people at Berkeley. Like he was just one of those people who, who felt at home in any crowd. and. The moment I found out, I went down the road and just bought a journal and just started writing down all our inside jokes, just little memories here and there, things I never wanted to forget. And some of that stuff ended up in a eulogy I had to deliver a few days later. I think my friends asked me to do it because I was already writing so much stuff down. They figured like I, it would just be easy for me to me to do it, but it was, it was collaborative. Like we all sort of pitched in. Um, and honestly, just delivering the eulogy, writing down my thoughts, it felt so perfect. Like I, I write in the book that I don't know if it was good, but it was perfect. Like it's exactly how I felt that week in that moment. And for many years, I was just kind of chasing that feeling of having the precise language or the precise description for the things I was feeling. For the next 20 years, 20 odd years, I did become a writer. It was never really the the career path. Like I didn't set out to do it. I was I'm very fortunate to have found my way. But in the back of my mind, I would always return to this document. Like I would return to my journal. I would return to that night, that summer, um, the memories I still held on to. And so it took me quite a while, but um eventually I started actually putting together the scraps, the notes, the little riffs, uh, the ephemera into the thing that eventually became this book, Stay True. And there are a couple of pieces of this book that ended up in The New Yorker. There's the piece about your dad and music, but there's also a piece about Jacques Derrida and friendship. Yeah. <laughs> we have to talk about the connection between these two pieces. Of course. For many years, I was just a music critic or a cultural critic. I'd write about literature and ideas. I didn't really come up at a time as a journalist when journalists wrote about themselves very much. Like in the late 90s, early 2000s, to write something in the first person, that was a privilege that very few writers uh, like ascended to. And I think particularly as an Asian American, I didn't have that many models to draw on. You know, like I would draw... I. I later kind of found my models in novelists like Chang Rae Lee or Maxine Hong Kingston, the way they would really slyly bring kind of autobiography or memoir into their fiction. But, you know, there it, it's not like nowadays where, where I think someone trying to process their own experience, you know, there's just so many wonderful voices you can draw on and, and be inspired by. So anyhow, I was, writing a lot in the 2000s, just trying to pay the bills, reviewing records and whatnot, there would be these moments when I would think like, what is the point of reviewing this, this like Nelly record? But in the back of my mind, I would think, well, there are these things you want to someday write. And 
this is all in the service of practice. Like this is all kind of honing your skills of description because like there are more significant things you want to someday describe other than this song. I've never really touched on any of this in my writing. I do see it in the background of a lot of the writing I've done where I'm just always trying to write about different things. Like I've, music is one of my like primary passions, but I've written about like a wide range of things mm. like literature, mushrooms, sports, like all sorts of things. And it's, it's because I'm just trying to become better at like describing stuff because I knew that I had to do it for this book. You didn't even like Ken the first time you met him. I mean, you admit this in the book. You're just like, yeah, I met him and ugh, I did not like him. So <laughs> let's talk about the start of this friendship because sure. that's not usually what you hear. Is it? Is it unusual? I mean, I feel like maybe it's maybe it's just that I'm by nature like kind of like that. <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> expecting it. <laughs> I, it's it's sort of this running thing for me. I feel like I have a lot of great friends. Uh, where the where I remember meeting them for the first time and thinking I I'm never going to be friends with this person you know so it it is just sort of more an indictment of me <laughs> than of these people in my lives when the book begins I'm essentially a teenager like I've just there's there's a discussion of like my family the the and sort of the the ways in which they taught me to see the world in a particular way. And the ways in which I was enamored with like other ways of seeing the world that I was getting from popular music. Like I was like super into like Nirvana and alternative culture and like all of these things that, you know, millions of kids were into in the 1990s. But I felt like I had a singular grasp of what it meant to be different and alternative and into like DIY stuff. And so when I got to college, like I had a, you know, a fun time in high school. I had like really good friends, but I just really sought out this, these adventures. Like mm -hmm. I sought out people to have adventures with. Mm -hmm. And by adventure, I mean like, you know, underground shows, like going to see independent film and foreign film and just sort of talking about literature and theory and philosophy and all these things that I think draw people to college. You know, th mm -hmm. this is a time where your, your horizons are going to be expanded. And so when I first met Ken, you know, we were both in the freshman dorms, Ida Sproul Hall, in 1995 at Berkeley. And he was just, he just seemed so generic to me. Uh, he was just into things that I thought were just super mainstream and, and just kind of predictable. But the more I got to know him, the more I realized that he was not a predictable person and that he mm -hmm. was actually a dreamer in a way that like I was afraid to dream. And what do you mean? You know, I think he just really wanted to be part of the culture. Like he wanted to see himself reflected in the culture. I would never have admitted that I wanted that too. You know, like mm. I was very much happy being this person on the margins, just kind mm -hmm. of like making fun of stuff. Um, he wanted to actually see himself represented and see himself as part of this I don't know, like larger Americas, like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's the nineties, like multiculturalism, how, how come there's not space for us as well? And even though now I feel like I have a more, um, like it's like mature outlook on that. I think at the time, I don't know, I was like too quote unquote cool to actually like want any of that or to think that any of that was desirable. Yeah, you were also an adolescent and our brains don't finish cooking until we're what, 25? I mean... That's my excuse, right? You're my excuse a kid. I was, I was still a kid, yeah. Experience. And one of the things that you talk about when you talk about Ken, though, is the fact that you'd never met an Asian American guy who was as comfortable in his own skin as Ken was. You'd, you'd seen this kind of behavior and, and this sort of carriage in white guys, but not in Asian Americans. And that's something that you don't always hear people in our community admitting to. Yeah, I think there were there were other versions of that in my high school. Like, and, and I still talk to friends who grew up in the South Bay about how, you know, the first generation kids are like so different from like the third or fourth generation kids. And so I felt like I I saw that in my high school, like when I was a first year student, like a freshman, you'd like see these senior Japanese American guys on the basketball team or something. Ken was the first time that I actually kind of fell under the spell, you know, just kind of like gave someone like that a chance um, and and really tried to understand them. Um, and it is a very 
imperceptible difference. I, I mean, I don't think it's something that is even intuitive to most Asian Americans, right? The whole point of Asian American identity is that we've all chosen to be something together new, you know, and that we will figure out what it means together. Like it's a term that only came into fashion in the late 60s. And so there's something really exciting about that. But I think there's also these like really tiny specificities. I don't know that it's sort of like the stuff of identity, right? Just kind yeah, of like completely. how different is my experience as someone whose parents came from Taiwan in the early 70s, late 60s versus someone whose parents came from the mainland in the 90s, like very different experiences, totally imperceptible to like 99% of, of people probably on the planet, let alone in the United States. And even sometimes in the community. I mean, we've got people who embrace this idea of the model minority, which personally makes my eyes roll back into my head and get stuck. I can't stand it. <laughs> but here you are trying to figure out, you grew up in the Bay Area, you grew up surrounded by faces like yours. I mean, and I say this as someone who grew up in Massachusetts, and I think there were three of us who were Asian American in my high school, maybe. That sense of community is really skewed, I think, and it depends on sort of where you grew up. And I mean, one of the things I love about Stay True is the fact that it's shot through with photos of you in college and just these full bleed pages. And yeah, you're babies. You're babies <laughs> in these photos. <laughs> but I want to talk about the design of the book because it feels mm -hmm. very intentional and a little magazine-y, if we think about it for a second, just to have these photos of you guys in the moment. I mean, and these are photos too, where you had to print them out on paper and someone had to carry a camera. We weren't all just, you know, whipping out our phones and going, hey, you know, click. Yeah, you know, something you just said, um, something I think about a lot, which is that I, I didn't realize how unusual my upbringing was like yeah. I, I grew up in the south bay before i mean like there was tech but it wasn't remotely what it is now right and you know there were a lot of asian kids in my high school but not as many as there are now mm -hmm. you know at the same mm -hmm. school and i was also spending a lot of time going to taiwan yeah my father worked there and so i think i was sort of i won't i wouldn't say i was like unconcerned but like questions of representation weren't as as like front of mind for me mm -hmm. because I was exposed to so much right. just in everyday life. You know, like uh, my my grandparents were living in the South Bay and they had this really rich life as senior citizens. Um, I was going to Taiwan. I was watching like Taiwanese and Hong Kong cinema. So like mm -hmm. I was accustomed to seeing faces like mine in the movies. Like my high school had like Asian jocks as well as like Asian nerds. And then there were right. people like me who were in between, like there were Asian skater kids. Like I was making a zine. It never occurred to me that this meant we should see these stories like in literature or on TV right. or in the movies. Like okay. maybe that was the part of me that felt like, why, why bother dreaming? You'll just be disappointed. But like personally, I think I just experienced so much in that range that I didn't, I couldn't fully process the experience of people who didn't have that abundance of Asian American life. Does that make sense? Right. But even yeah, though at the time I found it like stifling and kind of boring, there are certain things that were just very normal to me that were like completely abnormal to most Asian Americans. When I was in high school, when I was in college, I was making a lot of zines. They're mm -hmm. like, they're, they're terrible um, to look at now, but... <laughs> There was this whole community of people, of Asian right. American people who did that. A lot of us were all inspired by um, Giant Robot, which was this yep. magazine that um, these two guys, Eric and Martin, did. Um, and now Martin's daughter is in this band, the Linda Lindas, who are which like- Which is so awesome to see. Which is like incredible to see so that that like tradition <laughs> being carried on. But, you know, it was like absolutely normal in the mid-90s, late-90s, especially if you're going to like a UC- like mm -hmm. UC Davis, UCLA, uh, Berkeley, uh, Irvine, to to be an Asian American person who made zines. Like it didn't mean that you were like an anarchist, vegan punk or anything, although many were. It just meant that, you know, you you wanted an outlet. And like a ton of my friends did it. I met it, made a lot of good friends doing it too. And so that was really important to me at the time. And it's it's become less a part of my identity the more I've kind of been absorbed into being like a quote-unquote professional writer. Um, but 
you know, it wasn't my idea. Like my editor, Thomas at Doubleday, um, one of the many like great ideas he had was like, you know, he was reading a section of the book where I refer to this photo I took of a 7-Eleven, just like a yeah. random 7-Eleven sign. And it was just kind of like, in the book, it just marks me as being like kind of this weird person who would just like take pictures of signs because nobody did that back then because you had to then develop it, pay to get it developed. Like it was, it, it's not like today where it's much easier to catalog like your daily experience. And then I said to Thomas, like, well, I actually still have that photo, obviously, because I've kept everything. And he said, well, why don't we use some of these images in the book? And I I like the way it's laid out. Like, as you said, they're just these full bleed images. Yeah. They're not really like captioned or anything because mm -hmm. the point is just to give you this, this, you know, it's like you're walking down the hall of a dorm and you're just peeking in different people's yeah. rooms. Like, that's all it is. Um, it's not, I, I don't want to like belabor who these people are or what's going on mm -hmm. in these images. It just sort of to give you a sense of um, a little bit of texture or dimensionality to to the past. Um, but it is weird because like I think there are entire years of my life where there's no photographic evidence that I existed because you just would never, I don't know, like in circa 1992, it was like such a pain to have a camera. Like nobody would, nobody bothered taking pictures of all these things that um, one would now take like a hundred pictures of, you know? And a lot of what you're talking about in Stay True too, though, is the search for authenticity. And I mean, even when you're talking about you being stubborn or, you know, picky about music or judging people and all of it, you're essentially talking about wanting to find people who are their authentic selves. And clearly Ken had some of that about him, even at a very young age, yeah. maybe more so than you or some other folks in your circle. But are you any closer to finding what's authentic for you? I think I'll, I figured a lot of things out. Mm -hmm. literally as I was writing the book. I'm usually like an obsessive, methodical writer mm -hmm. where I have everything, if not mapped out, like I kind of know spatially like what's going to happen in a piece of writing. But right. with this, I just kind of had to write it to figure out what it was. Like for mm -hmm. years, friends would friends knew that I was working on this. Mm -hmm. um, like friends who were in the book, actually. But I could never explain what it was, like nor could they imagine what it might be. You know, I would just say, like, I'm writing the story of us. Like, I'm writing a story about Ken. But there there was never anything to point to. Like, it's going to be like that. Because, like, I didn't know what it was. And I think in the process of writing it, I did arrive at a place I didn't know was there. Yeah, uh, I, I'm sure every writer thinks this. It's just that I've never had this experience. I'm usually just writing criticism or writing a, 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 a something reported where I kind of already know what the story is going to be. but because this story was also about my own, like, I guess, self-discovery to some extent. Yeah. It, it was literally this thing where, like, as I was writing it, I was figuring things out and then I would write more. Back then, I was just really enamored with this version of cool and wondering these philosophical questions like, well, am I really cool if, like, I don't think my friends are cool? Like, they're cool, but, like, they don't understand why I'm dressed this way or, like, why I listen to this stuff. So, like, what does that say about, and and now I just don't really care that much. It's it's just kind of like they're cool is like property of young people. I'm no longer a young person and I feel very comfortable in my own skin. And part of that is, I think, reflecting on the lessons I learned from uh, this, 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 this part of my life. Emotional discomfort, not a lot of fun for a lot of people. So the idea that you can capture all of these very fleeting moments I'm so glad you grabbed that notebook in 98, because I think this would have been a really different book if you'd had to sort of recreate. I think it's really hard for us to sit in who we were when we were teenagers and college students. I think you know, for some of us, it was more than a minute ago. Um, but to recreate that emotional honesty, I think, is really, really hard. And when you're writing a magazine profile, you know when it ends. Mm -hmm. Or if you're writing a piece of criticism, you know when it ends. I'm not saying you necessarily know exactly how it ends, but you know when it ends. And a book, you have to figure out when it ends. It's one of the many things that I look back on. And I mm -hmm. just think like, I, I probably should just talk to more people about this. You know, in the book, there's this moment where I talked to a therapist and uh -huh. 
I think after 20 minutes, like I've been fixed because she's just asking me a series of questions that are like so basic and obvious, but like they just weren't questions that I was asking myself. But yeah, I mean, I think once I realized that part of the way the book worked was that I would just be like continuously dunking on my former self, like it made mm-hmm. it much easier to write. And it actually, mm-hmm. you know, it felt like I was hanging out with us. Like it felt like I was just spending time with these other version, another version of me and a version of someone who I continue to be very fond of, um, as well as like younger versions of friends who are still in my life. And so mm-hmm. it felt very odd to enjoy this process, right? Of writing about something that at its root is always going to verge towards tragedy. Like there's no way I can write my way out of that. But I, I had to accept like, no, this is part of the gift. The part of the gift that I still feel having known him is that like, I can, I can reflect on these good times, right? That I had these good times and that it can be fun to write about this. That doesn't take, that doesn't change anything, you know? In other words, you found the authenticity. You found the authentic moment. You found the authentic people who you were kind of in the moment. And, and I think that's really I'd like powerful. to think so. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you did it. I think you did it. But you were a poli-sci major, which I didn't <laughs> expect. And I am slightly changing the subject only because poli-sci led you to being a professor of English <laughs> and a magazine true, yeah. journalist. <laughs> So in other words, you've always been trying to figure out how to tell the story. I mean, a zine is a story. Mm-hmm. It's deconstructing words and pictures and ideas, but you've always been sitting in story. I mean, political science, sorry, it's learning how to tell stories. I mean, history is telling story. It's all telling stories. So here you are with a very big formal education, Harvard. I mean, your first book was your dissertation. Yeah. Which- still kind of blows my mind a little bit. But I want to talk about your evolution as a writer. Because, I mean, you you sit with this professor and every sort of couple of weeks you show up with a bunch of pages and hand them off to him. And he's like, yeah, oh, right. you're my, still... Michael Rogan. Yeah, 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 yeah. But this sort of sets you on more of a formal path mm-hmm. to writing about the arts. You just have a lot of steps in between. So let's talk about finding your voice for a second. It, it might sound strange. I don't I don't feel like I have a voice. Like I feel what? like my voice is composed of just having copied a ton of people along the way. I think that I have a relationship to the world in my writing. And I think all all art makes me think about like the relationship that this person imagines with like the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Like you know, like I I used to love, I still love like pop songs where it's like someone singing someone whispering against a hail of noise like that's like one of my favorite genres of music is music where someone is just kind of lazily singing quietly but there's just sort of a wall of feedback behind them okay because i think that that's an incredible position in the world right like there's all this chaos there's all this noise and i'm going to keep my cool and not try and sing above it i'm right. just going to continue whispering my my like beautiful song yeah like michael rogan my poli sci professor dearly departed he was one of the first people who i would like study and copy and i think this probably goes back a little bit to not necessarily having these models to pattern myself after there are a lot of people who i've borrowed very specific things from like rogan uh grill marcus maxine hong kingston mm-hmm. i feel like there are parts of this book that are just straight up like outtakes from her novel Tripmaster Monkey, which is one of my yeah. favorite novels of all time. <laughs> in a weird way, you mean this one? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and it's I I always tell my students, I hope one of you becomes like fabulously wealthy, and if you do, remember me and remember that I would always love to see a film adaptation of Tripmaster Monkey directed by Wong Kar Wai. So please, mm-hmm. please, someone make that happen. I mean, that novel is about an insufferable, pretentious Chinese-American Berkeley student who has a friend who is this confident Japanese-American guy. Um, And it's all taking place in the backdrop of the Vietnam War, of like student protests, like acid trips. Like that book was very, very um, influential to me. But yeah, I mean, I think writing that thesis that you're talking about, like I write about in the book, 
or Michael Rogan in the poli sci department, uh, writing film criticism. It was the first time that I felt like the kind of casual banter of of my friends and I, of of Ken and I specifically, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was something that that had some value beyond my scene or like beyond. Um, yeah, it was, it was something that like other people could possibly take seriously. And so Rogan encouraged me to like go to graduate school. He said, you should go to graduate school in anything but political science <laughs> because he sensed that I did not actually have a passion for it. Right. And also, um, I don't think he he thought that the the field itself would be that hospitable to people who were interested in like the kind of cultural studies stuff I was into. But yeah, I mean, I've just been really fortunate because I think being in graduate school, being in academia, it always just gave me um, like another world to go into outside of the world of like journalism and freelance. Like, I think that I kept them pretty separate for a while because I wanted to, um, because that made it easy to not take either of them like too seriously. Also, health insurance is nice. Yeah, no, that is how- Just um, little, little stuff like that. I mean, it, it is kind of important. I mean, that's when my parents- thought that I had like properly made it was when mm. I finally had health insurance. Yeah, I can say that. I, you know, Asian parents, Yeah, <laughs> they are practical. They yeah. love us, but they're wicked, wicked practical people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I get it. I mean, you talk about this too. You talk about, you know, the first generation being mostly interested in survival and then the next generation gets to tell the stories. And I know I keep coming back to this, but the idea of you having an authentic voice that is Asian American and this idea of an Asian American identity, which, yeah, it's true. It's roughly 60 years old. It was the late 60s where all of this starts happening. And this idea of creating an identity that is holy itself. And yet, you know, you were born in Illinois. I was born in Massachusetts. There are still some folks who would look at you or look at I and just be like, hmm, so when do we stop being immigrants? When do we stop being outsiders? I mean, you're a New Yorker. I'm a New Yorker. I'm a part-time Angelino. I don't really know. I mean, I, I often joke about how whenever I'm writing a piece about anything Asian American from New mm-hmm. Yorker, there always has to be that canned or that, 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 that like little potted history of like Asian American, like an identity that only mm-hmm. came into. And will there be a point which we stop doing that? Like maybe I could just stop doing that. And, you know, the copy desk would be fine. Uh, maybe it, maybe it's me bringing this up constantly. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. Like, I, I think that I feel some degree of, I don't know if optimism is the right word, because at the same time, like, mm-hmm. the country seems more divisive than it's ever been in my lifetime. But it does seem like difference has been normalized in a way where... Certain things still need to be explained. Certain things mm-hmm. still need to be contextualized, but it's not everything the right. way it, it may have once been. I would say there could be even more of a range, but there mm-hmm. is a range of Asian American writers, people from like the Asian diaspora mm-hmm. contributing to culture who's, you know, I mean, for me, a key part of being an Asian American writer is this kind of <laughs> ever conscious thing about people not really caring that much about the Asian American experience, you know, Mm -hmm. just sort of like this like self-consciousness about your own like marginalization. But, you know, there are a lot of things you could do with that. I think like something like going back to Tripmaster Monkey or Mm -hmm. or Warrior, like Maxine Hong Kingston does incredible things with this sense of like, uh, of like an outsider looking in and and trying to fit Mm -hmm. in, playing with those expectations. So I feel like there are a lot of possibilities for, I mean, specifically for younger, like Asian American writers, filmmakers, artists. I think the key is just to remember that there is this history behind us and that a lot of people feel as though they're alone, as though they're trying, they have to reinvent the wheel. But, you know, you're not alone. Like there is this history. There Mm -hmm. is this, people have had these conversations for quite some time, even before the identity came about in the late 60s, you know, like. And to sort of draw strength from that rather than to feel um, encumbered by it. I mean, part of it for me, too, though, is the fact that someone like you can write under your own name. Your byline is Hua Shu. No one called you Henry. No one made you pick Hank. <laughs> no one made you call, you know, and Chang Rei Lee gets to write under his, Min Jin Lee gets to write under her own name. Viet Thanh Nguyen writes under his own name. No one is anglicizing anything. And we're just saying, hi, we're here. I mean, I spell my name a thousand times a day, but... 
these are our names. These are who we are. This is what we present. And I, and I really, the first time I saw your byline in the New Yorker, I was like, okay, who is this dude? What am I getting into? And I, it might've been a piece on hip hop too. Like, I can't remember yeah. the first thing I read by you, but I was like you and Jeff Chang, like in these spaces where it's so important to see just that, you know, we have interests that aren't necessarily food or fashion or, you know, I mean, not that those things aren't important either, but it's taking space in a way that not everyone would have expected or even wanted to hand over. I mean, yeah, Ben Fong Torres was at Rolling Stone mm -hmm. for a really long time and doing really interesting stuff, but he was first and only in a lot of rooms for a really long Yeah, yeah, time. he was, you know, like, respect the architect. Um, you know, Jeff Chang, huge influence on my life. Right? He was one of my early mentors. He mentored another writer, Oliver Wang, mm -hmm. who was also mm -hmm. one of my mentors. And so, I mean, for me, during this time, you know, we're talking, the book is in college, late 90s, yeah, like, yeah. seeing people like Oliver, seeing people yeah, like yeah. Jeff, uh, as a as a fan, like I was reading the San Francisco Bay Guardian, yeah. seeing them write about their experiences as DJs, as like cultural critics, it was really powerful to me. And to be a part of that is is pretty pretty humbling. Like it's it's, and it's also cool that people can disagree with Jeff or disagree with me. Right. There's always going to be like the younger crew, mm -hmm. and that's that's cool. Like I think that that's healthy, even though. Um, it's also like a little harrowing too to to realize that I'm on I'm on my way I'm on my way out. I mean, I certainly tried to anglicize my name for like a hot second when we were living in Texas. Like I, okay. I insisted on being called Luke. Ooh. Um, but I'm I'm glad my parents then yeah. respond to that by moving us to California. So you know the stuff that we do, the pretzels, but we do have to evolve. We have to evolve as a community, as a as you know, whatever Asian America is, and we can't stay static. I mean, if we do, then what's the point? What do you want readers to understand about this story that you're telling in Stay True? Because you are very deliberate in the ways that this story is told. You are very deliberate in the ways that you talk about this book. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, without spoiling it, mm -hmm. although like... I often, I sometimes think that like nothing actually happens in the book because so much of it is just happens in conversation or happens in my own head. I mean, nothing happens to me. Obviously, something terrible happens, but it's not like I could describe what the journey is for mm -hmm. the protagonist, which ostensibly is me. Um, but yeah, there is a very deliberate structure to the book. For, for a long time, like the the whole point of it was just to recapture these moments of uh these moments from the past right mm -hmm. these moments that i never had to think about until until they were over you know what i mean like you don't necessarily historicize an inside joke with your friend if you and your friend keep telling the same inside joke you know you don't necessarily have to think about the parameters of friendship if that friendship is enduring and so all of a sudden, one day, all these memories became like freighted with meaning or they seemed important. They seemed like something that may have like subtext, even though, you know, there is no subtext. And so for a long time, I was just like, you know what? This is just a story of someone who was like a good person. You may not have known them, but this is why they're a good person. And this is why it's unfortunate that they're not here anymore. And honestly, it's very weird to me when readers have their own relationship to him because yeah. I've turned him into like a character in a book. But it's also incredible that they find him as good of a person as I as I do. If that happens, like that's that's great. You know, like I I think that that's sort of at a very basic level. You know, if that happens then you know, he'll, he'll never be forgotten, which is great um, because he should have been able to do that on his own terms. Do you think you'd be the writer you are now? No. If it weren't for that? Yeah. No, definitely not. I don't even, I mean, I don't even know that I would be a writer. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I mean, I think, okay, first of all, I think everyone is a writer. Okay. Like I always tell my writing classes, like we're all writers, you know, it's just a matter of like 
what kind of writing you do and like how how much how much writing you do. I don't know. Like I don't know that I would have had the the fuel to keep going. Mm-hmm. Not that it was a discrete goal. Mm-hmm. Circa like 2000, like circa 2000, I was just trying to like get some music reviews published so that I could pay my cable bill. But um, I think over the years, thinking about writing, just spending so much time at a keyboard, I would often just kind of return to that moment through writing. And so I don't know that I would have necessarily had the the energy or the fuel to see through this project of becoming a writer and then eventually honing my skills to the point where I could do this. Because like, I mean, I write, I say it in the book, but like there, there are like years where I thought like, I'll never be able to describe like what his laugh sounded like. So what's the point of any of this? It's sort of one of those unanswerable questions. Like I've, I've had that conversation with a few of my friends Mm -hmm. since, since the book has been finished and since friends have been able to read it, like the ways in which we see that moment as determining or as um, guiding us towards certain paths or certain Mm -hmm. personal habits or tics or routines. Um, I think for me, writing also just kind of, I've never left campus basically. (laughs) Like I've been in college since 1995. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just that I teach at one now. Um, These are all things that I think I wanted to do, but I don't know if I would have had the, the will to keep doing mm-hmm. them if I wasn't trying to figure out this like bigger thing. You've been teaching undergrads for how long now? 15 years. Okay. I, I mean, before that I was in grad school, so I was also teaching. Them, okay. But sure. Yeah. What have you learned from your students? I've learned to be very open-minded. You know, I, I think that that's sort of something that happens in the book too, is that I slowly come to terms with how narrow-minded I was, like how closed-minded mm-hmm. I was um, as I was like, processing kind of the past and thinking about like things that I had learned from Ken. I think it's somewhat similar to how I view my students. Yeah. You know, I've been teaching for 15 years. So uh, there's a lot of cohorts of young people who are into stuff that like I don't get. Mm -hmm. And it's been interesting to see that progression, right? Like maybe 10 years ago, kids who were, who were like, what I was in college, like kids who were in like quote unquote cool stuff were into like this. Now they're into this. Like this generation thinks that generation from a couple of years ago is is like weak and weird, you know? And I'm just there to watch over them, to make mm-hmm. sure they're safe as much as I can and to impart some sense of um, how to be in the world. Like mm-hmm. there are things that I teach them very specifically about, let's say the craft of writing or the history of American literature, but you know, I'm there mainly to just remind them to listen to one another, right? To listen mm. to me. Um, when someone tells you about the past, and this is something that I think about with the book a lot, because mm-hmm. I don't see the book as nostalgic. Like I don't think I'm making an argument that 1997 was superior to 2021. Oh, you are not. No, no fear there. No. <laughs> but but I'm very much saying that like this is what 1997 felt like. Like this yeah. is what, this is what the rhythm of a the, a day of a college student felt like before the internet. You know, before mm-hmm. um, when you could uh, pick up people at the airport much e- more easily than you can now. Yeah, and, and so I think sometimes, you know, we we project a lot onto one another. We um, we may not listen with an open heart, and so I think that's one thing that. I encourage my students to do. And then I have to remind myself, like, I have to do that too. Like I need to, just because I've done these things or been in school these years or written these things, it doesn't make me an expert on their lives. And and I need to be open to their experiences, their struggles, their their dreams and ambitions, sort of the size of the world that they that they want to enter into. Um, which is why I don't actually talk about any of this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. or or like myself really that much when I'm teaching because I don't really want to overdetermine their sense of like the highs and lows of of what their lives are going to be like over the next few years. I think it's also fascinating too the way they've forced changes in language that we could never quite get through. Like if you look 
Yeah, if you just look at the evolution of language, and not just pop culture language, but language in general since the 90s, it's amazing what we've been yeah. able to get <laughs> moved forward in a lot of ways in a very short period of time. Yeah. Um, and I think that says something to the tenacity of young people who are just like, y'all did not, what is happening here? And I frequently say this to people too who are younger than I am. I'm like, you don't understand. We were barbarians in the 90s. We were total barbarians. It doesn't matter where we came from. Or, you know, how we were raised or where we went to school with just everyone. Like, we were so uncivilized completely. Like, we had no idea what yeah. was going on. But I think I always, I always try and convey to them mm -hmm. that is true, but that they're barbarians to people who are just now being born. You know what I mean? That's just yeah, the totally. cycle of things totally. is that, you know, like, I spent my college years calling out X, Y, and Z, mm -hmm. like, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. I was right, uh, obviously, you know, but someone now might look back at me and say like, well, these were your blind spots. And it's my obligation to like, yeah, you're right. I didn't, we didn't see that back then, right. but you have to be aware that like, there are things you don't see too. Right. Maybe we can figure what those things are together. I just want us to own our stuff. That's all I'm asking is that yeah. we own, like, we can't pretend that the past was better just because it was something that we were more familiar and more comfortable in. Yeah. Like we have to, we all have to sort of be messy about the whole thing. And yeah, you're absolutely right. The kids who are in their twenties now, yeah, they're going to be total barbarians to the next generation. But, you know, I feel like there are still some of us in our advanced dotage that are swanning around saying, Oh no, we had it so much better. or We had it figured out or, you know, you guys are just making a hash of things. And I really don't think that's true. I really think that we just have to keep pushing forward and, you know, I miss zines. I really do. They were kind of groovy and weird. And there doesn't seem to be an equivalent. Like Tumblr is not a zine. <laughs> like it's just, And I know Tumblr is gone too, but like TikTok is not a zine. There was something really kind of fun and weird and different about making a zine. Last semester, like was my last semester teaching at Vassar, which mm -hmm, is where yeah. I'd been for 15 years. And there was this little like get together and I was hanging out with some students and they were all, they're all seniors. So yeah, that yeah. means they were born in, I don't know what, 2001, maybe 2000. Oh. And they all had, they all had, um, a bunch of them had digital film, like film cameras, like point and shoot film cameras, but they were like the high end film cameras from, I don't know, like 2005 or something. And we were just talking about the nature of, of like, like, why do you have that? And like, well, like shooting film is kind of cool. And this is like the best, uh, the best point and shoot of 2005 is probably like really good technology, right? And it was just fascinating to have this conversation and then to reflect on how like back then we never took pictures of ourselves because right. you just never think to do that. And it was interesting to have this conversation with them because you could sort of acknowledge what was better and worse about the past mm -hmm. at the same time, which I think is a hard thing to do because they were all kind of fascinated with this idea that like we could take pictures of ourselves, but no one would ever see them. You know, you yeah. would just kind of, you know, maybe you'd make doubles, give them to your friends, but like, you know, they were just for you. They were just kind mm -hmm. of, there was no sense of like public display of identity of self. Um, and at the same time, I was like, but you know, and then they thought that was really liberating. That sounded very liberating to not have to think about social media. But then I was like, well, when I was 21 in 19, you know, 98, I would have killed for a device that could summon any song in the world yeah. on this box, you know? And so it's sort of like there's there are things about the past that were better. There's things about the, the past that were worse, much like the present. And you just have to think about what those trade-offs mean right and and sort of what your relationship is to them but um i mean that's one of the reasons i like teaching is because it prevents me from having any like truly fixed ideas about about my own my my own life and my own past what was on your playlist when you were writing stay true so i wrote it at the public library i had this fellowship oh. i was very lucky to have a coleman fellowship oh, where you're essentially great. you're essentially forced to write every day like if you yeah. don't show up to your office in the library someone asks like what's wrong like why aren't you writing and um part of it is that they give you these old pcs and so rather than trying to import my like itunes all this stuff yeah. i said like i'm just gonna use 
Spotify finally. Like I'd never used it prior mm-hmm. to 2019. Mm-hmm. And so I I made these hyper specific playlists for specific like months mm-hmm. of the 1990s. You know, obviously like I I remember a lot of the music from like the summer after yeah. um Ken's death and and I remember what I was listening to right before it because my sense of taste like drastically changed in that moment. Like I could no longer listen to stuff from the past. And and so I just have, you know, a collection of like hyper-specific playlists to addresses to like where I would listen to this. Uh, There's certain playlists. Mm -hmm. And I still have a lot of mixtapes from the 90s. And so I would just sort of reassemble them. Um, But yeah, it was like weirdly very helpful to finally finally join the streaming revolution uh, all these years later. What's next? I don't know. I mean, so I think for quite a while, this was the the thing I wanted to yeah. do, even before I knew it would be a thing. It was just mm-hmm. sort of like, this is this is all what it's amounting to. It was just right. being able to do this. Like, it, it's not that, I'm sure I could have published something like this years ago, but mm-hmm. I don't think I was able to do it in the way that I wanted to until like fairly recently. After finishing it, I kind of felt like, well, I don't have anything left to say. Like, I think I'm actually done. I do owe Doubleday another book. Uh, (laughs) And originally, there are parts of this book that were in that book. It's Mm -hmm. called Imposter Syndrome. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really just a title right now. Mm -hmm. I thought it was like a good title. But, um, you know, it explores the idea of imposter syndrome, which is this idea that um, particularly affects women and people of color, just the mm-hmm. sense that like you're a faker in these institutional spaces, just this this insecurity that you're faking it, that you're an imposter, that like someone, even if you're high achieving, someday someone will come and say like, actually, there's been a mistake. You're actually not, this isn't your position, right? This is not, these are mm-hmm. not your achievements. Um, it's something that kind of arose in the 1970s. These mm-hmm. psychologists studied the the sort of interiorities of like women who had ascended the corporate ranks and discovered that they felt like deeply insecure and mm-hmm. um, kind of unstable about like not unstable but like um, that they were they, they were constantly on shaky footing right that mm-hmm. they, they were being judged differently and I just think it's an interesting dynamic through which to understand like I don't know like the immigrant experience. The experience of being a writer, like I, I don't actually think I, I don't actually think I'm an expert in anything I write about, even though I think I can write in a way that feels authoritative. Um, and so I think I was just very drawn to a book that could be about teaching, because uh, teaching is another place where I personally feel like um, I'm just like maybe a quarter step ahead of my students uh, writing where I feel like um, so much of it is about performing authority um, and, and also just kind of general immigrant experience, notions of pedagogy. So I think it's just a collection of related essays that that are that sort of circulate around this notion of like imposture and performance. And I can't wait to read it. Hua Xu, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. Stay True is out now. Thanks so much. This is a joy. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top-Off, where we recommend books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Stay True. I'm Mark. And I'm Becky. And we're coming to you from our Barnes & Noble store in Cincinnati. We've got a couple books to go over, so Becky, if you don't mind, I'll jump right in. Go right ahead. Thank you very much. (laughs) So the book that I chose is Almost American Girl by Robin Ha. This is a gorgeous graphic novel memoir uh, that tells her journey at 14. Uh, she was living in Korea with her mother, uh, then named Chunaha. Uh, she and her mother were facing some discrimination um, in their Korean life. Uh, Korean culture doesn't always shine the kindest light on single motherhood. So they were dealing with a bit of that. Pile on to that, a trip to Alabama. Um, supposed to be a jaunty visit, a little vacation that turned immediately into a permanent residence. Um, unbeknownst to Chuna, who thought she was just there for a trip. And her mother kind of pulled the rug out from under her and said, we're staying here forever. Chuna didn't speak English. And 
at 14 years old, saying goodbye to your friends, your family, everything that you knew and being dumped into this small Southern town with no grasp of the language or the cultural ins and outs. I mean, yeah, just come on. It, it, it was rough stuff. Um, so that created an obvious rift between her and her mother. Um, but she turned to comic books as a way to just escape and to try to get some semblance of joy out of this murky time. Uh, her mother took notice and signed her up for a comic book drawing class, which put her on this brilliant path and honed her talent to give us this fantastic memoir. Um, I highly recommend this book. It's just a beautiful story of trying to fit in when you are just cast to the waves. Um, it's lovely. So please check out Almost American Girl by Robin Hahn. Becky, do you have one for us? I do. Um, I went in a different direction uh, thinking about grief and just how we deal with it and process it. And so the book that I chose is The Beauty of What Remains by Steve Leader. Basically, this kind of takes the idea of making peace with death is really about making peace with life. Uh, death is inevitable. It is coming for us all, uh, whether we want to admit it or not. And um, Steve Leader is a rabbi who dealt with death regularly, just with families uh, in his synagogue as, you know, as family members passed away and helping the rest of the family then deal with their grief. But it really wasn't until his own father passed away that he took notice of, of what grieving means and then the joy that can come um, from the legacy that's left behind. The person that, that has left us has still left an imprint on our lives, uh, the people that they interacted with. Maybe they've left a legacy of work or, um, you know, creation. Um, and so there's a lot of beauty that is still there, uh, even though their absence is definitely noticeable. So uh, this is just such a beautiful book, whether you've already dealt with some grief of your own um, or you just you know, want to be prepared for your, you know, for something that's coming in your own family or maybe a friend or just, just to enlighten yourself. Like I said, so beautiful, very hopeful and just, and at times funny too, as life is. <laughs> but um, it just, it again, teaches us how to live and love more deeply, um, showing us not only what is gone, but then the beauty of what remains still. So Check it out when you have a chance, please. It is The Beauty That Remains by Steve Leader. Mm, nice choices. <laughs> thank you. You too. Yes. Uh, thank you so much. All right. Well, that's all we have for today. Thank you very, very much for tuning in to Port Over. Please make sure to give us some support with a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Hit the button. Hit the button. Hit that button. <laughs> You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. I'm Becky. And you can follow our home store at BN Westchester. Thanks again, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Bye. Board Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.